welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and this month, we're asking, how did Amber Capital's engagement with Lagardère go from friendly to hostile? Who is the man behind Hindenburg Investment Research, and what is his mission? Why did Hudson Executive Capital launch its first proxy contest after years of promising it would approach investments with mutual respect? But first, a look at Activist Insights' intermediary rankings for 2019, which lists the top law and proxy firms of the season. Activist Insight Monthly has published its annual list of the most prolific law firms and proxy solicitors in activist investing. Once again, Olshin Frumolowski and Okapi Partners ranked first in their respective fields, with Vincent and Elkins the busiest law firm on the defense side. Joining us today is Elizabeth Gonzalez-Sussman, a partner at Olshin, and Okapi CEO Bruce Goldfarb, here to tell us their impressions of the last year. Hi both. Welcome to the show. Elizabeth, your firm has worked on a record number of situations this year. What are some trends that you noticed in 2019? As in prior years, saw continued coupling of activism and M&A activity, as well as private equity activity, whether it took the form of opposing or calling for a strategic transaction, divestiture, spinoff. We saw this pretty prominently with Elliott at Barnes & Noble and Athena Health, Starboard at Pop John's. And so there does seem to be a continuing trend of the focal point of a lot of the strategic engagements relating to some sort of M&A activity. In addition, you see this movement abroad of active managers and utilizing a lot of the activist tools that have been honed in the United States, but abroad. Olshin was involved in a number of, of situations in Asia, not only in Japan, but also Malaysia and Korea, and increased activity in Europe. Some trends that haven't been always so positive in the United States has been the adoption of more extensive bylaw provisions in order to nominate, seeing an increasing amount of pretty extensive bylaw provisions that also include the completion of questionnaires that often don't look very similar to a normal director questionnaire if in a non-contested election. And the result of which is that it can add cost to a, a nominating process. Bruce, 2019 saw fewer campaigns go to a vote than in the past. Why do you think that is? in part because investors put forth ideas that would be very well accepted by other participants in the market. Companies recognize that good ideas can come from investors and there can be significant distraction when you're going into a proxy fight, especially when you're ultimately all agreeing about certain issues that can help drive value. Where we still have proxy fights were the situations where the sides were so far apart that they couldn't reach an obvious conclusion or where management so strongly believed in their position and they knew that they were going to get support from their investors or the stock was strengthening, you would end up with a situation where you would get a proxy fight. 
but there were so many other situations where there was a lot of common ground or there was a way to achieve the goals this year. And always with the understanding that if things don't work out, you can recalibrate and redecide what is most important to move forward. Now, Elizabeth, what were some of the most exciting campaigns of this past year? EQT is a perfect example, which was probably one of the most exciting campaigns I worked on this year. You have a team of former Rice Energy members who had sold Rice Energy to EQT in 2017. Fast forward a year later, and EQT has a huge revenue miss, not delivering sort of the synergies that were promised when Rice Energy was to merge with EQT. At first, you have a number of other stockholders reach out to the Rice team, looking for them to try to help EQT realize those synergies. EQT's response is to say, no, thank you. And so you have these non-traditional folks who decide to nominate a slate of directors with the intent on replacing the CEO. You know, ultimately, they're successful. You see overwhelming support for the Rice team, and it goes to a full vote. And the Rice team takes control of the board and replaces the CEO. You know, that's a perfect example, too, of another trend, which is increased diversity in boards. On the EQT board, you see now six of the 12 board members are female. And at Bed Bath & Beyond, which is another very exciting campaign this year, there is now a majority of board members who are either female or diverse on the current Bed Bath board. And that campaign truly was exciting in that you saw three of our clients grouped together, undertake some initial engagement, nominate a full slate of directors. The company initially does some level of reaction in appointing five new directors, having their executive chairman step down. And ultimately, it does settle with the three investors that group together in order to add a new CEO and four additional new directors. So that level of change, I don't even think you've seen since Darden in 2014 and shows a success in a group activity. Bruce, what do you expect for next year? We worked with a number of activists in 2019 who had never been active before. And we are talking to people for campaigns in 2020. We're also working with a number of companies where they are hearing from investors that they may not have known well in the past. And either it's a brand new activist or it's an investor who has set up a different fund. But I should emphasize that the big activists are going to be the kings of this realm over the next few years. Reputation is very important in the activist world now. Thanks for being here for our next report. Doug Bronstein's Hudson Executive Capital swore off proxy contests as a launch they promised in 2015. However, circumstances have shown that isn't always possible. In October, Hudson nominated a slate for election to the board of USA Technologies in its first-ever proxy fight. 
USA Technologies has already seen its fair share of activism, winning a contest brought by SAFE Partners in 2012 and evading calls for a sale from Legion Partners Asset Management in 2016. But its delisting from the NASDAQ in September drove Hudson to initiate a proxy fight for the entire board. Hudson has been a constructivist hedge fund until now, but its abandonment of a promise not to run contests was, quote, inevitable, one senior defense banker told Activist Insight Monthly. USA Technologies won't give up easily, though. The company accused Bronstein of hiding behind a soundbite to, quote, disguise the true nature of his tactics, adding that it was skeptical of Hudson's track record in assisting companies which they have targeted. Since the fund's launch, Hudson's publicly disclosed investments have generated an average annualized total follower return of 35%, according to Activist Insight Online. A source told Activist Insight Monthly that Hudson returned an average 15% before fees since launch and was up 60% to date in 2019. The activist hired Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft and Innisfree M&A to prepare for the fight. It began a consent solicitation and sued USA Technologies over bylaw amendments that blocked its ability to hasten a shareholder vote. Eventually, the parties settled in court when USA Technologies agreed to hold its annual meeting at the end of April 2020. The lengthy delay may make fertile ground for a settlement although the company has rejected Hudson's proposal to split the board between four of its nominees and four incumbents, with the new CEO becoming the ninth member in due course. Instead, USA Technologies said the company's priority is to regain its NASDAQ listing. It also complained that two of Hudson's eight nominees were invested in the activists' fund and that three formerly worked at J.P. Morgan, Bronstein's place of employment before launching Hudson. At the same time, however, the company has enacted a quick leadership transition, appointing Don Layden as executive chairman and interim CEO after Stephen Herbert quit in October. With 20 public short-selling campaigns and over 25 whistleblower reports to date, it's safe to say that New York-based Hindenburg Investment Research has done well for itself since doors opened in 2017. According to activist Insight Shorts, Hindenburg's average campaign return sits at 24.3%. Nathan Anderson founded the short-selling outfit to expose fraud in the public sphere, using the outfit's proprietary capital to fund campaigns. Anderson told Activist Insight Monthly that Hindenburg has several approaches in its selection process of targets. My favorite method is to find a thoroughly corrupt individual, preferably a serial fraud artist, then figure out what companies they are associated with and who else they do business with, he said. This tends to be a high probability indicator of where there will be major undisclosed business issues. Anderson added that he prefers to expose fraud in the healthcare space because, in addition to the financial harm, it can also cause deadly harm to patients. However, he noted that fraud is not limited to any one sector and said he would look at anything. Most recently, Hindenburg replaced a bet against Smile Direct Club, claiming the teledentistry platform is carelessly cutting corners and putting customers in danger with its at-home, do-it-yourself model. Anderson said he was proud of the Smile Direct Club situation, noting that the stock is down around 39% after 
as of November 14th, despite all 10 of Smile Direct Club's underwriters issuing buy ratings the day after Hindenburg released its report in early October. Other public companies targeted by Hindenburg include Yangtze Riverport and Logistics and Riot Blockchain. However, the firm also identifies private market frauds like Ponzi schemes and submits them to regulators through whistleblower programs. With over 25 whistleblower cases submitted to regulators and its eyes set on several billion-dollar Ponzi schemes, the short seller said it may start publishing on these publicly as well. Discussions between Amber Capital and Lagardère hit a wall after the activist nominated two directors for election to the board in May 2018. Since then, shares in the French media conglomerate have tumbled 17%, and the company has now sued Amber for 84 million euros, claiming a destabilization campaign by the activist led to the drop in the stock price. While lawyers activist Insight Monthly spoke to said Lagardère's court action against Amber is unlikely to be successful, the activist believes the suit's main goal is to intimidate dissidents. Lagardère is seeking to discourage any other shareholder who might consider issuing critical analysis on the company's management and exercising their shareholder rights, just as Amber is doing, the activist said in a press release in October. Although Amber lost the 2018 proxy contest by a wide margin, the fight was a wake-up call for managing partner Arnaud Lagardère, who may have realized that control over the media giant founded by his father, Jean-Luc, could slip from his grasp. The family investment vehicle, Lagardère Capital and Management, owns around 7% of the company's shares and 10% of its voting rights. Although shareholders cannot eliminate the structure, they do have a veto over the appointment of the managing partner. Amber first invested in Lagardère in 2016 and had been meeting regularly with divisional chief executives to push the firm to ditch low-return assets like Lagardère Sports and Entertainment and parts of Lagardère Active, as well as focus on its well-performing travel retail and publishing units. Under pressure from a disgruntled shareholder base, Lagardère started to act more urgently, carrying out some of Amber's suggestions by announcing plans to shift focus to the successful travel retail and publishing divisions. However, Amber said the restructuring is not optimal, noting that few asset disposals have been made and the company is still bearing very large restructuring and asset write-down costs every year. In fact, Lagardère's low valuation might be a function of its poor corporate governance. Alpha Value, a pan-European independent research firm, said Lagardère's legal structure is highly unfriendly, while its governance is weaker than expected for the sector. Lagardère described its corporate structure as modern and perfectly in step with corporate governance requirements. And now for some stories that did not make it into the magazine. Voce Capital Management is planning a second proxy fight at Argo Group International, after May's showdown with the Bermuda-based insurer was deferred by state regulators. The activist investor has filed a consent solicitation seeking the support of 10% of the shareholder base to requisition a special meeting. On its own, Voce owns 5.8% of Argo. In February, Voce initiated its campaign with a long list of complaints about the lavish perks bestowed on Argo CEO Mark Watson. Before going on into detail, it's believed that the insurer could improve its returns on equity through cost-cutting, 
reallocating capital, and selling its international operations. However, it said it needed to remove the Big Five, long-tenure directors it believed had a disproportionate influence on the board. Watson retired last month after a Securities and Exchange Commission subpoena sparked an investigation into executive compensation by the Argo Board of Directors. Shares in Argo were down slightly for the year as of the end of November, suggesting that the opportunity still exists for Voce to make its case for change. Elliott Management has published a presentation explaining Altron Technologies' sale to Capgemini. Although the activist agrees that a deal makes sense, Elliott said Altron shareholders could miss out on significant value creation at the current price of 14 euros per share. Elliott's letter comes shortly after Capgemini CEO Paul Hermelin told Reuters he will not increase his offer and expressed confidence that he would get 50.1% of shareholders behind the deal. Elliott, which owns economic exposure to 10% of the stock in Altron, said the process behind the deal was conflict-ridden. It also claimed that Altron CEO Dominique Cerruti's opinion was likely compromised, including through an agreement with its largest shareholder Apex Partners, which Elliott said was seeking to exit its stake. The activist said that four conflicted directors, including Cerruti and two Apex representatives, deliberated the offer when they should have recused themselves. The four directors did not vote on the transaction later in the year. Elliott's concerns are also shared by the Association of Minority Shareholders, a body representing the rights of minority shareholders led by Colette Neuville. The association said it had commissioned a valuation expert that put Altron's worth at 17 euros per share. That's all for this month's episode of the Activist Insight Podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you have something you want discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.